Hi, this is Chris Young. Welcome to episode 30 of Contemplating Life. This week we continue with stories from my senior year at Northwest High School and Roberts Handicap School. After the fiasco of taking a freshman physical science class during my junior year, I finally got to an age-appropriate science class with senior physics. Mr. Stan Irwin was once again my teacher, and my classmates were very much my intellectual peers. We had a bunch of fun in that class. The lab work was the best part of the course. We had a neat piece of equipment called a linear air track. It was an aluminum rail about three feet long with tiny holes in it. A blower would blow air out the holes, sort of like an air hockey table. There was a little aluminum gadget that would slide along the rail on a cushion of air. It had springs on either end, and a little slider would bounce off the end stops. Or you could put two devices on, and they would bounce back and forth off of each other. As you would slide one into the other, it would stop and transfer all of its energy to the second one. You could get two of them bouncing back and forth in different patterns. It was sort of like the same principle in a desktop toy known as a Newton's Cradle. I linked a YouTube video of a similar device. One of the requirements for the class was to do a project that would demonstrate some sort of principle of physics that we had learned. I tried to build a homemade ohm meter. I designed it and my dad did most of the construction. It had a pointer mounted on a board that would pivot freely. There was a magnet on one end. Near the magnet was a coiled wire, and when connected to a battery, it became an electromagnet. There were some resistors in a triangular pattern known as a Wheatstone Bridge. Theoretically, when you connected different resistors into one of the four sides of the bridge circuit, the current would flow forward or backward through the meter. I never did get it to work exactly right because I didn't have a good spring to put tension on the pointer. I inadvertently demonstrated a different principle of physics. I didn't have a spring, so I used a stretched-out piece of elastic thread that my mother had in her sewing kit. The problem was that the elastic thread wasn't actually elastic by the definition of elasticity in physics. Elastic objects in physics, when stretched out, will always return to their original shape. But when you stretch this thread, it didn't always go back to its original length. It was an inelastic elastic thread. I don't recall what grade I got on the project, but it was okay because my basic design was sound. It's just that the gadget I built didn't exactly work as designed. This was a physics class, not an engineering class. One guy built a closed-circuit television camera for his project. He purchased some sort of small electronic sensor and designed a circuit that would generate a TV signal. I seem to recall he got it working. The image was pretty low quality and a bit jittery, but it did work. 
Another guy made an 8mm film stop-motion animated old movie. He had these little clay figures that were nothing but a ball with eyes and a mouth. They were pushing around toy blocks to demonstrate basic machines, such as the lever, an inclined plane, a pulley, and a screw. You couldn't tell what they were building until the very end. It was a monument that spelled out the word Irwin in honor of our teacher. Although it had no sound, he played music while showing it. It was a crazy song from the 70s called Hocus Pocus by a group called Focus. He didn't have the timing of the animation figured out quite right, so the figures moved very rapidly. The frantic pace of the silly song went perfectly with the animation. If you've never heard Hocus Pocus by Focus, be sure to check out the link in the description. It's a very crazy song. I enjoyed an experiment we did with a gadget called a tape timer. It was a little device that you'd feed a string of paper tape to it. It would print a dot on the tape at regular timed intervals. You would attach the tape to a little cart and string a lead weight off the edge of the table. It would accelerate the car pulling the tape. You would then carefully measure the distance between the dots and calculate the acceleration. At the far end of the building, there was a ramp down a half a level. I think it went down to the gymnasium. I forget. We took all of the equipment down there and ran the cart down the ramp. I also grabbed a hold of the tape and ran my wheelchair down the ramp at full speed. But I don't remember the results of my calculations as to how fast I was going. We also took a trip down to the school auditorium on the stage, and we hung a full-cone pendulum from high in the catwalks of the stage and demonstrated that the earth was turning beneath it. Of course, we also did the trick where you would stand a student in front of the pendulum with a weight hanging right in front of your nose and then drop it. When it swings back again, it naturally had to lose some tiny amount of momentum from friction and air resistance, but it looks like it's going to hit you in the face. We also did the famous monkey gun experiment. The premise is there's a monkey hanging from a tree. You aim your rifle directly at him, but the instant that you fire your shot, he hears it and lets go of the branch and starts to free fall. However, your bullet is free falling at the same rate and travels in a parabolic arc. The bullet will always hit the monkey because they're falling at the same rate due to gravity. Now, in reality, if you were in such a situation, you'd have to deal with the reaction time of the monkey. But for our experiment, we had a blowgun with a small ball in it. There was a switch at the end of the barrel that would release an electromagnet holding a tin can up in the air. When the ball hits the switch, the magnet releases and the can starts to fall. Because our muzzle velocity wasn't very high, you can see the ball traveling in an arc, but it always hits the tin can, assuming you've aimed directly at the can to begin with. 
you don't have to compensate for the ball's falling trajectory. I've got a YouTube video of that experiment linked also. The experiments with static electricity were especially fun. We had a device called the Van de Graaff generator. It's about three feet tall with a large metal sphere on top. It sits atop a glass cylinder. At the base, there's a belt on a pulley that rubs against something and creates static electricity. The electric charge is carried to the sphere on top via the belt. The end result is you get a large static charge in the sphere. If your hand is on the sphere when it charges up, it'll make your hair stand on end. We even made a chain of students all holding hands with one of them holding onto the sphere. Everyone in the chain had their hair standing up. I would have liked to try it, but I was afraid the static charge might blow out the electronics in my power wheelchair. We tried to pull a prank on Mr. Irwin one morning. The class was first period, and we could get there about 10 minutes before class started and before he arrived. The Van de Graaff generator was sitting on the lab table at the front of the class. On a couple of occasions, he would write something on the blackboard, and you couldn't see it because the device was in the way. We had to ask him to move it. We used that situation to set up our prank. We charged up the device and then turned it off. Normally, when you're done with it, you would ground it to release the static charge. We had a glass rod about 18 inches long with a metal tip on the end. A ground wire extended from the tip and would clip onto the faucet in the sink at the end of the lab table. We disconnected the ground wire but left it lying near the faucet so everything looked normal. When he came into the room and started lecturing, we were all on the edge of our seats waiting for him to write something on the blackboard. It must have been a good 10 or 15 minutes, and we were worried that the device would slowly leak off its charge. Finally, he began writing on the blackboard, and within seconds, someone asked him to move the Van de Graaff generator. As he reached for it, he must have felt the hair on the back of his arm stand up and realize what was going on. <laughs> he looked at the class and smiled. Somebody's trying to be very clever. I told you not to mess with this equipment. Well, I'm not here. You thought you were cute, but you didn't catch me. Then he picked up the grounding wand and touched it to the sphere. Normally, as you approach with the wand, a tiny spark will jump. He noticed it didn't spark. He picked up the loose ground wire and smiled at the class again. You really thought you were clever, didn't you? The whole class cracked up hysterically. Even though we didn't give him the shock we were hoping for, the failed attempt was a bunch of fun. Meanwhile, back at Robert's school, things were going rough. It was obvious the morale at the school was at an all-time low. Teachers and administrators knew that neither the environment nor the curriculum were meeting anyone's needs. Roberts High School had a student government where we elected a class president, vice president, and a student council. 
We had the problem that there weren't enough kids who had sufficient grades to serve on the student council. You had to have a B average. We proposed an amendment that would lower the standards, but the teachers were against it. I don't recall how that turned out. We brought one of our grievances to the teachers and administrations during one of our open council meetings. As I mentioned in earlier episodes, from time to time, we would get visitors in the building. They were either nursing students or special education teaching students. One day, there was a guy in the group who stopped by and asked me what homework I was doing. It happened to be French, so he spoke a few words to me in French, and I was able to reply. He later stopped by again to tell me he got in trouble for talking to us. They were supposed to just observe us like we were animals in the zoo. During the student council meeting, I brought up the question, why can't they talk to us? Are we just some sort of curiosity to be put on display? They said the policy was because they didn't want anyone to say anything embarrassing to us. I said the only thing embarrassing was being treated like animals, and that was on them, not the visitors. Or perhaps I suggested they were embarrassed by the quality of education we were getting. You'll recall the stories I told in my article, The Reunion, about how depressed all of us were in those days. I described a sort of town hall meeting where we had to express our feelings. Early in my senior year of attending both schools half day, a proposal arose to move the high school program out of Robert's school into a regular high school. I don't know if that proposal was the result of some behind-the-scenes activity by my mother, but I don't think so, because she knew I was happy at Northwest. I only had a semester and a half left before graduation. I don't know if the morale issues I've been discussing were a contributing factor, but I have to believe that my success at Northwest did have an effect on decision-making to even consider moving us to a regular high school. At the time, the only high school in Indianapolis that was completely accessible with an elevator was Shortridge High School. The school opened in 1864. It's the oldest free public high school in Indiana. It has a lengthy list of distinguished alumni, including Senator Richard Luker, Congressman Dan Burton, author Kurt Vonnegut Jr., and many others. See the Wikipedia article in the description about the distinguished history of this institution. We had a meeting in the Robert School Auditorium one evening that brought together students, parents, teachers, and administrators. I invited Mr. Irwin to attend to give his perspective on what it was like to have a handicapped student attending a regular high school. At first, he was reluctant to come. He wasn't sure what he could contribute to, to the discussion. The proposal before us was to move the entire Roberts High School program into Shortridge High School. Mrs. Bartlett and Mr. Price will continue to be the homeroom teachers and in all likelihood will continue to teach most, if not all, of the same subjects they were currently teaching. However, anyone who wanted to take a class 
that was not offered by the special education program would be free to go out into the buildings and take any other class. You wouldn't be stuck in a biology class with no lab. You would have physics or chemistry as well. There'd be more foreign languages than just French. There would be advanced placement classes if you qualified. Shortridge had the same kind of teletype machine we had at Northwest and taught the same computer programming class in BASIC that we had. Although I would have hated to leave Northwest in my senior year after achieving so much success, the opportunity to go to a regular high school full-time was attractive. I might have liked it. Before the meeting, we took a field trip to Shortridge, and a student showed us around. We toured classrooms, the cafeteria, math department with the teletype machine connected to the computer, the shop and home ec classrooms, and the science labs. During the trip, I tried to explain to everyone just how cool all this was and what they were missing out on. For the most part, the overprotective parents were opposed to it. Although Shortridge is a prestigious institution, I believe there was a perception that it had lost its former glory. It was now just another inner-city school with a majority non-white population. The parents had the impression it was the kind of place where a knife fight broke out in the cafeteria about once a week, and they didn't want their precious little crippled kids exposed to that. Even though Roberts was the most racially diverse and integrated school in the entire IPS system, I believe racial prejudice was a large part of the opposition to moving the school to Shortridge. Mr. Irwin participated openly in the meeting. I don't remember anything specific that he said, but I could tell he was quite incredulous at the opposition to the move. I tried to explain to the group not only the academic advantages I had at Northwest and could have at Shortridge, but I talked about those intangible things I spoken of in earlier episodes. I tried to describe things like the excitement of going to a pep rally or any other kind of school assembly. For the most part, the students were either not enthusiastic or completely opposed to the idea. They knew they had it easy at Roberts. They knew they had the teachers wrapped around their fingers. We had that porch that we could hang out on when we weren't in class, and the guys could smoke out there as long as the lookouts did their job. I'm guessing perhaps 70% of the meeting was about something negative regarding the proposal. In the end, it was up to the school administration to decide. The spineless bastards gave in to the pressure and pretty much gutted the plan. The best they would do is that anyone who wanted to go to Shortridge could go and would have absolutely no support other than transportation. If the entire program had moved, I probably would have gone to Shortridge full-time. But considering that the proposal was completely gutted, I decided to stay going half-day to Roberts and half-day to Northwest. It was my senior year, and I really didn't want to move. Only two students signed up to go. They stayed about two or three weeks, gave up, and came back to Roberts. Afterward, I had a conversation with Mr. Irwin about the experience. 
all he would say was it was very eye-opening. He reiterated that initially he didn't know why he needed to be there. But once he was, he knew he needed to be there. I asked him what he meant. What did you learn? He wouldn't say specifically, but it was clear he was incredulous at the overprotectiveness of the parents and staff, and he understood why I had gotten out of there to the extent that I could. I always wondered, perhaps, if he had gained some understanding of me because I had grown up in that environment. Many times over the years, I've done Google searches and Facebook searches looking for Mr. Stanley Irwin. I've not had any success in locating him. One time, there was another teacher who offered commentary to me about attending Northwest. She was a very strict English teacher named Constance K. Kochman. We nicknamed her KKK, not because she was racist, because I don't think she was, but because she was a, a pain in the ass and nobody liked her. In retrospect, she was a good teacher who was tough on her students because she wanted the best for them. She chewed me out one day for being lazy. She said, I found out that you came to this school because you're getting a lousy education where you were, and you wanted to come to a place where you could really learn something. Your mother holds you over here every day so you can get a quality education, and you're squandering the opportunity. I told her I appreciated everything my mother did for me. I was still getting a better education at Northwest than I would have at Roberts. But I wasn't going to bust my ass to get straight A's when I didn't have to. I told her I was there to have a normal high school experience. And for me, that meant studying when I felt like it, learning what I could, and having a good time like a normal high school kid. I never got it below a B during the three years that was there, and that was good enough for me. I didn't tell her about my friend Terry Johnson, who got straight A's through four years of high school and then died six months later. I'm sure that was in the back of my mind. I suppose in retrospect, I could have worked a little harder at Northwest but I really don't have any regrets about anything I did or didn't do academically, except perhaps the way I looked down on the freshman students who were not up to my level. I'm still disappointed I couldn't communicate to the people at Roberts what it was they were missing by not attending a regular school. The administration wasted a wonderful opportunity to help my classmates get a better education. Next week, I'll discuss more events of my senior year. We'll talk about the first three dates I ever went on with a girl. Actually, I had three dates with two different girls. And I'll finally wrap up the series as I describe my high school graduation. I've been thinking about taking a couple of weeks off from the podcast after we conclude this series. I've been writing, recording, and editing between 2,500 and 3,500 words a week for 30 weeks straight, and I need a vacation. I'll discuss that more when I figure out exactly what I'm going to do. It won't be the end of the podcast, but I really need a break. If you find this podcast educational, entertaining, enlightening, 
or even inspiring, consider sponsoring me on Patreon for just $5 per month. You'll get early access to the podcast and any other benefits I might come up with down the road. Although I have some financial struggles, I'm not really in this for the money. Still, every bit helps. Many thanks to my Patreon supporters. Your support helps pay for the writing seminar I attend. But mostly I appreciate it because it shows how much you care about what I'm doing. Your support means more to me than words can express. Even if you cannot provide financial support, please post links and share this podcast on social media so I can grow my audience. If you have any comments, questions, or other feedback, please feel free to comment on any of the platforms where you find this podcast. I'll see you next week as we continue contemplating life. Until then, fly safe, everyone.